I wanted to say two things before I start the timer. Um, I'm going to start a feature for the rest of the weeks that I teach. And the name of the feature will be Out of the Mouths of Babes. And, and you're going to hear something that came out of the real mouths of real babes <laughs> um, at some point in what I say. I won't necessarily identify it, but let that be a challenge with maybe a prize sometime in the future to, to uh, listen for what I say that's out of the mouths of babes. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, too, before we begin. How many of you consider yourselves to be visual learners primarily? Okay. And um, how many think that discipleship and mentoring are the same thing in your mind? Mentoring is really, I think, a term that's been used longer in the church and now discipleship, which is, goes back to Jesus, is finally being used interchangeably. Do you see any difference in those? Just yes or no? Yes, I do? Okay. All right, those were my two questions. <laughs> All right. God, the master sculptor, loves the clay he's molding, you and your child, and he stays at his work table for decades, and he works night and day. He knows how to work on the stiff clay until it's pliable. He knows where the impurities are and how to bring them to the surface in order to remove them. An observer for this master sculptor might think that the stresses and the pressures could never result in stronger clay. Do we sometimes wonder about that in our lives, that the stresses and the pressures, how can we be being made stronger with these? Our author's description of the Newhart comedy skit points to the irony in this. Um, um, Newhart says to his patient, just stop worrying. Well, that's fine, and really it ends up being just that, but we need energy and spiritual strength to do that, and that's where God's supernatural character becomes our necessary resource, doesn't it? I'd said that I would spend longer than the author does on the, on the uh, attributes or characteristics of God, pressed as a result of prayer to do so. So um, um, I'll talk for what seems like several minutes about these. <clears throat> if we feel a spirit of fear or weakness, usually those two things are tied together. We can be sure that those things haven't come from God. 1 Timothy 1.7 in King James says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The gifts of power, love, and a sound mind originate with and in God as his own character traits. God is spirit without a body, this we know, and he is however personal and displays his character in all of his actions. Though at an infinite distance between God as creator and ourselves as creatures, 
God has chosen to disclose his identity and purpose to us across the whole of Scripture in ways that we can understand. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes God this way, a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth. There are also aspects of God's character that are not communicated past forward that reveal him as distant with an exalted nature that there is no analogy in us to. Here are some of these. When I first was taught them, they honestly did make a difference in the way every day I walked with my God. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. As my father, I can appeal to him for help in any pain or trial that I encounter. God is omniscient. God knows all of my past, present, future, including my sinful attempts to usurp his place as Lord of my life. God is omnipresent. There's no reality nor realm where he is not. Consequently, I am never alone. That's deep consolation when I'm submitted to him and waiting on him, and it's solemn warning when I'm living in sin, whether it's deliberate or just by neglect. God is immutable. He's changeless and faithful to himself, his decrees, his promises, his works. James 1.17 says the, the, the good gifts come down from the Father of lights, and in him there is no variation nor shadow due to change. The RSV is shadow due to change. I believe King James is turning. Hebrews 6 <clears throat> describes the unchangeable character of God in his purposes. <clears throat> also there, there are these beautiful words that he and his purposes are sure and steadfast anchors of the soul, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that, um, that comes from Jesus in his third office, the office of high priest, Hebrews chapter 6, if you're not familiar with it, um, the writer is urging Christians, leave off the milk and go to the meat, and then Christ is exalted here. So I recommend the whole chapter. We see God's otherness in, the at in these attributes. We are always changing, therefore we are always vulnerable. But God, unbounded by time or space, is never divided in his motivations. As always vulnerable, we are dependent on him, God, for everything, including our author makes clear our sleep and our rest, while in no instance is God dependent on us. I was in a church once and heard a woman pray, God, we know you're glad because we're the ones that you've waited for in the church. And I went home grieved, thinking, oh, <laughs> uh, how wrong, how opposite the truth. 
So we're in post-Christian America, and I use the word self-referential that describes our culture. Our culture is chaotic. In contrast to this, God's changelessness blazes out in glorious perfection. This word retrograde, I love to use it. I think it's powerful and it's packed with what I need. (laughs) There is nothing retrograde about God. God who is always who who is always the same is putting the trendy things and ideas and people out of business. He always will be doing that. Our dynamic loving God is constantly working. John 5:17 the the uh, Pharisees have just questioned Jesus about healing on the Sabbath and he said to them, "My father is working until now." and I am working. So have the idea there's no inertia uh, in the Godhead. They are always working to bring about their glory. There are additional aspects of God's character that seem prominent as we scan the whole Bible. Magnifying God's greatness, we can trace the glory, His holiness, His lordship, His love, as core descriptions of His acting in history to redeem a people for himself, to make them holy as he is holy. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, repeat, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The great irony in Scripture is that holiness points to the moral distance between God and man in the Old Testament, But in the New Testament, God the Spirit, who bridges this moral chasm and sets up residence in the human heart, is known as the Holy Spirit. God's holiness separates but also bridges the enormous gap between the creature and the Creator. These thoughts are from Richard Lotz in an essay on the attributes of God. I love studying about what holiness means and have for many years. There have been a lot of uh, misunderstanding in uh, watching people in my life who try to speculate about what it is. The The thing that I hold closest to my heart about holy is that a holy thing never leaves the essential purpose for which it was made. It stays to its purpose. It holds to its purpose. And that leads me to ask you, what's our chief purpose? What were we made for? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Who would want to drag their feet about that? (laughs) Who would want to dread it? Who would want to hold themselves back from running to it as hard as they could to be to 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 become the one who day in and day out, season in and season out, glorified God and enjoyed Him forever? Uh, this is actually a, a little bit of a pattern I've prayed for for many years. Father, I want to glorify and enjoy You. That's my purpose. Yes, even in this hard part, I want to do that. I'm not able to. Will you teach me how? 
and then will you come and help me to do it? The bridge that both separates us from God's holiness, but also spans the great gulf between the cross is the cross. All of God's attributes converge here. It is manifest most clearly in the offering of the Son as a sacrificial substitute who died on behalf of unholy people in order that they might be declared innocent and gain adoption as children of God. The love of God is active. The love of God is costly. The love of God is strong. Nothing can separate God's people from God because of his character and his love for them as a part of that character. The things that belong to God, we think raising, getting married and being in the intimate relationship with our husband and raising children, that that's as personal as it gets. The things having to do with God are more personal. The goal is to walk with God in such a way that when you think of all the personal relationships, yours and his, is the one that always comes to the top. The proof of God's love, then, is not in your circumstances. It's bogus to look at them. <laughs> the proof of God's love is the person of his son. If you can help to see this that I've drawn on the board visually, the, the point at the far uh, where conversion is is where the cross first comes to you with its truth and its implication and its power. And then as God begins to work and move you into um, um, sanctification toward ultimately glorification, you don't finish with the cross at the beginning. It grows and grows and grows and grows. We can't outgrow the cross and going back to the cross. I tell you the truth that the cross means more to me and I have to refer to it and claim it more now than I did in the beginning. Um, growing with the cross applied to our life, God is far holier than we knew him to be in the beginning. And our self-sins are far deeper than we knew them to be when he saved us. <clears throat> Psalm 56, 9 and 11 this I know that God is for me. What can man do to me? Here we sit, and if we tell the stories, and we have told some of the generations that we come from in our generation, then we know that man <clears throat> can do plenty to us. Um, there can be betraying and abandoning and using the family courts to punish and neglect of duty by those who God put in our lives to help us and support us. But we turn to Jesus, Romans 8, says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? One of the especial hard times in my life that was life-changing for my husband and me was in 1981 when, because he was suddenly very sick, deathly sick, and the resources dried up because of an uninsured long hospital stay. Everything dried up. 
And so we found ourselves in the fall having a yard sale at our house just before we turned the house back over to the cellar because there were no resources to keep living in the house. And in the yard sale on the table, there was our wedding silver and our china and the solid gold uh, class rings that both of us had, and on and on. <laughs> God had a particular lesson for us in this season, and the lesson was you two are self-sufficient and you're pretty smart, and you want to say not only do we want to take care of ourselves, but other people too. We love giving in the church to God's people. And the lesson for us from God is you need to be willing to learn to take from God's hand by, from unanticipated sources. <clears throat> so um, if too few finances you see in the future and that causes dread, don't dread it. There's a beautiful path to walk with our all-sufficient God if that comes to you. The earlier in our motherhood that we learn to cast all we are, all that we have, or all that we lack or need or hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, the sooner our hearts will be truly at rest, irregardless of our circumstances. It's interesting that the author spends so much ink on contrasting physical limitations with mother's power and goodness. Sarah testifies that sleeplessness brought her to what she was terrified of, the end of herself, but that she found, not at, at there, the black hole she had dreaded, but a tender father whose ear was inclined to her. She said in the text that she had made sleep an idol because without it, uh, she couldn't count on her self-reliance. We make idols of rest and sleep and exercise and time with friends, time with our families, going back to see our mothers. On and on we make idols. This would be an, a, a, a perfect season of our life to ask the Lord to show us our, our idols and reorder as we're being shown to do in our text. And besides, sleeplessness belongs to many of the life stages and situations. <laughs> Learning its humbling disciplines now is just a wise thing to do. We can learn to be quiet and calm and keep our whole self in Christ's presence when we're asleep. It's going to come to us in menopause. It will come to us in the caregiving years. It comes to us with our illness or illness of somebody that we love, and it definitely comes to us in the seasons and the dying of the people that we love. Practical preparation for sleepliness you'll talk about on your table with one another, at your tables with one another, but scriptures and hymns on tape or just to sing them aloud or sing them softly or think through them. One thing that helped me with the Lord's help, and I ask for it specifically, I ask him to help me determine a day ahead not to waste strength on worrying about what might happen tomorrow. <clears throat> this is about reordering our homes from chapter 3. 
Spurgeon said, let mothers labor to make their homes the happiest places in the world. Just this week, I sat across from a mother whose married daughter, a child of this church, sobbed as she confessed, I am a slave to my child. And the child is not an infant, but an undisciplined preschooler. Since whatever we give first place and affection to becomes our God, the preschool child in this home is an idol. And since the child is out of order, every other aspect of the home is out of order also. The author identifies six priorities to be ranked. Three are in this chapter and three next time. This chapter, we're to look at ranking children, God, and marriage. Some of us aren't married, but the other two are no less important. Do you notice that self is in the second of the three sets? In 2018, I came across some material um, under the heading Creating Margin. And it leads the one who's following it to make an honest list, maybe even um, keep a time um, diary of what you give your time and strength and affection to for a week. And then at the end of that time, look at it and see plainly that whatever is first is your God. The authors prescribe radical reordering of your time to reflect that you're living as a God worshiper. Faithful, wholehearted attention to the, to the Bible and God's self-communication and to his means of grace, both personal and corporate, are not options really for Christians, are they? To fail in this is to live at best as maybe what we saw last week, a practical deist. God, you made the world and all of its stuff, and now I'll decide about my days and my time. This seems to me to be outside Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible. Our author says that God is first, obviously marriage is second. The most I can do for my children grown and grandchildren still is to show sacrificial, sincere, honest love to my spouse and to do it with my deeds, not just words for words are easy for me to tell them, I love your daddy and granddaddy. <clears throat> the author says that the big picture goal for children in third place is to train them in the Lord in the context of simple living in an ordered home and she recommends to take full advantage of the delight of ordinary, everyday life. I say amen to that. Life at home and life at church. Bend to their level, slow down to their speed, talk to them eye to eye, heart to heart. They're not idols, but they're not props either. They're living souls. And they will live somewhere forever. Learn from them. Tim Challies, who's a blogger uh, and knows a lot about um, 
church culture and world culture says there's a meme that's just under the surface that motherhood should make us happy eventually. But motherhood can never give you what you will find only in the Lord. And there's another indicator that the, that the priority has to be Lord first, husband second. The husband second, I think I failed to, to um, uh, mention that beautiful portion in Ephesians where the, the order is there. It's plain. We get our ordering from God's order in Ephesians where he shows the ordering of the home. And, and it's just a little section of verses, but it's very clear. <clears throat> when I said learn from children, I really mean learn from children. The five-year-old boy I was watching with a lot of other children um, come down to the front in a church with a children's sermon. And the pastor came down and sat on the step close to them and said, today we want to talk about the meaning of tithing, what it means to tithe. He said a little, and then he asked for hands to say, "This is tell us what it means. And in the back, this five-year-old boy that I was watching pretty quickly raised his hand. But the pastor called on lots of people closer to him. Some of their answers made no sense, and some of them were pretty good. And finally, he called on this little boy, and the pastor said, so you tell us what tithing is. And he said, tithing is when the offering plate comes to you, you get in it. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for the lessons from children in our lives. May we take them to heart. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the order that you uh, bless the world with, that you bless families with. Thank you for gathering us again this second week to use the scriptures and to use um, this author who, who has been prepared by, by you to communicate how mothers can be raised above the drudgery and the, and the weariness of their mothering years to look at you first and then to draw strength from you for all that is before them to do. Lord, bless our table conversation. Bless the use of this psalm around the table and other scriptures that the, that the author has given us in these two chapters. And Lord, change us. Let us interact with one another, but more with you, our living and very personal God. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>